Well, just a, a word for our younger members. Um, here's a, a question for you. If you wanted to communicate with someone way on the other side of the world, how would you do that? Say you knew somebody who was living in India or China and you wanted to send them a message. What would be the best way to do that? Well, probably by email or a text message. My goodness, even today, it's so easy to have international plans on your telephone. You could just dial their phone number and give them a call, right? So in this day and age, we're very fortunate that we can communicate with people all over the world in just a matter of seconds. And in fact, when you think about it, look what we're doing this morning. We're together in church on Zoom. That would have never happened 10 years ago or 100 years ago. And so we're taking advantage of all of the possibilities that uh, are around us in this day and age. Back in the day of Paul, St. Paul, how do you think he got messages to the people that he wanted to talk to? You don't have to mess it up. I would think that you would have to send a letter if you didn't have if you didn't want to like go to their house and tell them. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more complicated, wasn't it, back then? You know, uh, he'd be writing a letter because our second lesson said that this was a letter from Paul to the people in Philippi. So he wrote a letter, probably put, a, put it in a big scroll and tied it up, and then probably paid somebody to take it on a ship. And then once it got to the port, it had to go you know, to the leader of the church in Philippi, and that probably took a long walk or a horseback ride or something. It was complicated. So, uh, but the effort that Paul went to was important because in today's second lesson, he talks about the importance of reminding the people there in Philippi that even though they're they're suffering, they can find a great deal of joy because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can forget that. And boy, this day and age with all of the challenges that are around us with the coronavirus and the fires and the smoke and having school at home and everything seems upended, it's a good reminder that there is some joy in our life if we remember. So that's why Paul went to all that effort to tell the people in Philippi, be faithful, don't worry so much. There is joy in your relationship with God. And that's a message that he's saying to, to us as well. Um, and today we get to share that message over Zoom, which is not a bad deal. So... There are two important messages. One is that, and then in the gospel lesson, 
if you listen to the adult sermon or if you do your, your uh, page that was sent to you, um, it talks about God's mercy. And that's the other wonderful thing that we need to tell as many people as we can about how merciful and kind and loving God really is. May not always be fair because sometimes we don't understand what's fair. We think what's fair is only what's good for us. But God teaches us a different way of what's good and, and wonderful for us, and that's God's way. So today's all about joy and mercy, telling each other about that, sharing that wonderful news. It's being together in a unique way. It's not worrying so much about our sufferings and pain because we know that God is with us. And God gives us these incredible, wonderful ways to communicate lovingly with each other. So blessings on all the ways that you communicate especially as you communicate with each other about what God has done for you and about the joy that we have in relationship with God and how wonderful God's mercy is for us. Amen. So for the older folks, this is uh, an interesting gospel lesson in Matthew. It's not usually high on a list of people's favorites because it's difficult. It's difficult for us to understand. It offends our sense of fairness, even though we know we shouldn't feel that way. But if we're honest, we do feel that way. Sometimes the best way to approach a gospel like this is to... Um, not jump into it head on, but to circle around it for a little bit, looking at it from a distance or from different angles. And that's what I'm hoping that a little better. So first, maybe let's notice the context of this parable that Jesus put before the disciples. Um, sometimes when we pluck a passage out of the Bible and read it, or if we speak it in our liturgy, we sometimes fail to think about or remember uh, the context of that passage, what comes before, what comes after. And so that can be a mistake. So with this gospel, it's important to know that. Uh, what comes before this parable in chapter 19 is the story of the rich young man who asks Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And if you remember that story, Jesus says, well, you have to keep the commandments. And the young man says, well, I've done that all my life. What else? And then Jesus tells him the most important part of that story. You must sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And after you've done that, then you come and follow me. And the young man, of course, is not willing to do that because he's very wealthy. So he goes away. And then Peter pipes up and says, well, what about us? We've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get? And right after that, Jesus tells this parable, obviously intending to say something about Peter's expectation of a rich reward for his faithfulness and all the work he's done for Jesus. If that weren't enough, 
What do you think follows this parable in Matthew? It's the story of the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and asking him to promise that her two boys will have the two seats of honor in his kingdom, one on his right and one on his left. So in fact, the parable that we have before us today is encased between two stories of disciples who really think that they're entitled to generous compensation for all of the sacrifices that they've made to follow Jesus. The context suggests that Jesus is telling us something here about how different discipleship is from what our human expectations are. While we generally identify the term parable with Jesus, scholars have been aware that parables have been a pretty standard teaching device uh, throughout the ancient world. So one example is Aesop's fables, uh, really very much like the parables of Jesus. And a few of Jesus' parables are in fact quite similar to parables that were told by other rabbis in ancient Palestine, though sometimes Jesus puts a startling twist on what would have been a familiar story to people in his day. And that's what's happening in this gospel lesson for today. There was a well-known parable in Jesus' day that starts out just exactly the same way as this one, with a vineyard owner hiring groups of laborers throughout the day and then paying them all the same, regardless of how long they work. But when the early workers complain, the employer says something quite different. He tells them that, in fact, the workers hired late in the day worked so hard that they accomplished just as much in one or two hours as the early birds had, even though they worked all day long. And that's why they're getting paid so generously. Now, that's a parable that we can understand and identify with. It's fair. It's reasonable. It has a wonderful lesson about hard work and diligence. But of course, it's not the parable that Jesus tells. The contrast between his version and the one told by the rabbis could not be starker. Jesus' parable has nothing to do with a just reward for labor. I can't help but think about the hymn that we sometimes sing called For the Fruit of All Creation. The hymn celebrates our doing God's will on earth by helping our neighbor, by caring for the hungry, and so forth. Fine sentiments in most respects, very biblical. Yet it has a line in the just reward of labor, God's will is done. Maybe so on earth, but apparently this isn't necessarily the way in heaven. Otherwise, we'd be calling that rabbinic parable the word of God instead of Jesus' strange twist on that parable. The, contract, the contrast between the two parables suggests that God's ways are not necessarily our ways. 
Now, the problems we've noticed here have caused Christian commentators throughout the years to try to find some other acceptable explanation for the vineyard owner's treatment of these late coming laborers. Some have suggested that he pays them so generously out of his own compassion for their need. Not a bad explanation. They have greater need than the ones hired earlier, so I'm going to compensate them for it. And maybe that's true. Others have said that he was rewarding their willingness to respond to the call with confidence and with faith. Others have speculated that the workers were actually doing him a great favor because the harvest was very urgent. He needed their help, and he was grateful that they were willing to step up even at the very last minute. So... What that teaches me by looking at all those commentators is that we Christians will go through any contortions to try to make God seem fair and reasonable. The truth is that the parable itself tells us exactly how we are to explain the owner's generosity. It is God's will. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? There's really no other explanation or reason beyond that. The owner chooses to do it. He doesn't owe us a reason, and so it is with God. All these various uh, um, explanations of the parable miss the simple and dramatic point that God does what God wills. God does not owe us an explanation. So we've been circling a little bit around it. Let's come hard at it now, head on. The heart of the parable, Martin Luther says, is that God does not want to deal with us according to our work, according to our deserving, but according to God's grace. And I think that's exactly the point of this parable. Grace has no reason. Grace has no strategy. Grace has no explanation that makes sense to human minds. It is simply the way that God wishes to deal with us. It doesn't, of course, seem fair. Who can sympathize with the early workers who think they deserved more? Who can't sympathize with Jonah, whose disobedience of God's call carried him into the belly of the whale, only to discover that God lets the wicked sinners of Nineveh off with no punishment whatsoever? But that is grace, and that is God. God's ways are not our ways, says the prophet Isaiah. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. The Reader's Digest once told about two men talking to each other, and one says to the other, my greatest fear is that in the final judgment, I'll be standing in line behind Mother Teresa, and I'll hear God say to her, you know, you should have done more. Well, at the end of the day, I suppose all of us should have done more could have done more. But that's not really how God reckons things. God's ways are not our ways. In the scandalous mathematics of grace, how much you do 
isn't the point. So what is the point? Well, let's go back to Martin Luther once more. In the Catechism, after reciting the long list of things that God has given me, if you remember, home and family, food and clothing, daily work, all I need from day to day, I acknowledge that none of it, none of it have I earned. This is what we say. All this he does out of his fatherly and divine goodness and mercy, though I do not deserve it. And when we see that clearly, see clearly that nothing we have earned is deserved, that all of it is grace, all of it, that all depends on our possessing God's free grace and constant blessing. Then we know that we surely ought to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. Amen.